Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Vince. And I'm Ashley. And we are the lead pastors of the Outlet Community Church. And wherever you are in the world, our heart is to add value to your life. That's right. Whether it's an encouraging word, whether it's a topic in the Bible, whether it's a life skill that you're looking to develop and hone in on, allow us to be an outlet for you. Yes, and our prayer is that wherever you are, whether you're right here in service or you're out in the world in the nation, listen, our prayer is that God meets you right where you are. We all have needs, we all have things, but our God is able and he's able to bless you and get you where you need to be. We have hundreds of hours of digital content that is available for you to consume yes. free of charge. Freely we receive, freely we want to give <laughs> it back to you. So make it a point to check out our page, check out our website at the yeah. Outlet Community. Dot com and you'll be able to find countless hours of videos, podcasts, and other material to help you grow in your walk with God. Hey, if you like some of the content, like, subscribe, share it, and we'd love that. <laughs> See your family and friends. So open up your heart and get ready to receive all that God has for you. Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This is just our text scripture that we'll be unpacking for the time that we are together. Matthew chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. It says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. All those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 generations from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. So the time that the promise was given to the time that the promise came into fruition was a total of 42 generations. But I want us specifically now to look at that last stretch where they had to believe, the last stretch where they had to be patient for the first coming of the Messiah in human flesh. And I'm reminded of Timothy Keller's quote from his book, Hidden Christmas, where he says, it seems as though God may have forgotten, but right now he is in the process of arranging all that will fulfill his great promises. And the encouraging undertone of this series is that even in your life where you seem, or it may seem like God has forgotten about you, God has forgotten about your prayers, I want to let you know that even as you're sitting, even as you're listening, even as you're of heart, God is orchestrating all things to work together for the good. And I just want to encourage somebody, if that's you in here, if that's you watching God right now was putting everything into place, but in the in-between time, from the time that God has promised us something to the time that we're actually holding what he's promised, we've got to learn how to get through those feelings and those moments. Because with the passage of time also increases the volume of internal questioning of the validity 
of God's promise. The longer it seems like you're having to wait for what it is you're believing for, the louder the negativity seems to be on the inside. And so for the, the, the time that we have today, the focus of today's message is I want us to silence the unbelief. Someone say and type in, silence the unbelief. Come on, say it a little bit louder. Say, silence the unbelief. I want us to take a moment to deal with the unbelief in our life. I want to take a moment to deal with the myths about unbelief. I want us to take a moment to have some strategies, some tips, some tools that when unbelief shows its ugly face, we know how to deal with it effectively. At the end of today's message, I am going to share with you something that we are going to do as a church in the month of January to assist us in developing the skills necessary to silence unbelief and allow God's word to be loud in our lives and our heart. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your grace. Father, in all of our hearts, you're calling us higher. In all of our hearts, you're asking us to trust you deeper. So help us to do just that. If we're honest, Lord, we're in need to hear from you, to align our lives to you, to silence the noise that's going on around us that sometimes seems to hide your direction. But I'm praying for every person under the sound of my voice. They will, at the end of today, commit or reaffirm their commitment to trusting you with all they have. In Jesus' name, everyone says and types in, Amen. Amen. Now, just for recap, I want to talk about this season that we're in, uh, the season of Advent, which the Latin root of this word means coming or the arrival. And Christians of earlier generations spoke of the advent of the Lord and his second advent. The birth of Jesus marked the fulfillment of God's promise from the beginning. The first coming of Christ marked the beginning of the foretold great kingdom of peace here on earth. But I want to caution us that where Jesus is not allowed to reign, there can be no peace. If he is not Lord of all, Jesus is not Lord of all, then in your life he's not Lord at all. And without him being Lord of all, we cannot expect to have peace. Jesus does not want to set up his kingdom of peace by force. But he wants to set up his kingdom of peace where people willingly submit themselves to him and let him rule over them. And when we submit our lives to God, that's when in exchange for our problems, he gives us his peace. And the beauty about the peace of God is that it doesn't mean it's the cessation of problems. It doesn't mean that when you have God's peace that there's nothing going on. But what peace and the peace that God brings and the peace that God gives is in the midst of some of the most daunting problems and tasks you face, you have a calm confidence that knows that God is sure concerning his word for your life. In the season of Advent, there are four seasons or four topics 
that we center on. And just by a quick review, can anybody tell me what those four topics are? I don't know. They might be over my shoulder, like hope, peace, joy, and love. During the time that we're going to be looking at, they were, they were expecting the first arrival. But I'm so grateful that Jesus did come. And in our life, what we can expect when Jesus shows up, when we're reminded and we make him the center of our life, we can always experience hope, peace, joy, and love in any circumstance. But going back to that Babylonian period, all the way to the birth of Christ, we need to talk about the preparation that went into experiencing the King of Kings. And I want to talk about the preparation for the promise of peace. If you're ever taking the moment to pray, if you're ever taking the moment to sit down and really genuinely ask God to do something magnificent in your life, I want to condition you to then begin to expect that there has to be a season of preparation before you ever experience God's promise. And sometimes in our life, I know for me personally, there are some prayers that I wish I could pray and then automatically experience the very thing that I pray. But the only thing about praying according to the word to receive God's promise without preparation is I do not build the strength necessary to maintain the promise when it arrives. And I want us to look today, go to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 5. Luke chapter 1 and verse 5 is replete with intense history in just this one verse. It says in Luke 1 and 5, it says, When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. So here in this particular text in Luke uh, 1 and 5, Herod was the king of Judea, and there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. There was so much that took place in order to get that scripture that we have read. In the last 200 years of Israel's canonical history, or the Old Testament history, and then the subsequent 400-year silent interval, many significant political and religious developments occurred. I'm ringing in the um, microphone in here, so we can bring me down just a tad. Judah came under the political dominion of Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon. And when Egypt failed to support Judah, the city of Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians after a lengthy and tragic siege. The Jewish kingdom, which began with Saul about 500 years before, was now over, and henceforth there could be no royal aspirant to the throne of David until Jesus' offer of himself to Israel as her king. And so the idea or the temple that was built in Jerusalem, the original temple, Solomon's temple that was originally built, was completely destroyed. It was completely decimated. And there was also a change of leadership to the Babylonian Empire, which we read in 
Matthew chapter 1. But in the midst of the destruction of the temple, there then was a force to innovation that the Jewish people, specifically the scribes and the priests, had to be thrust into. So without their reliance on just one general place to conduct all of their temple duties, they then were dispersed to create various synagogues, and the, the men who were the priests in that area went from just relying on holy tabernacles that they were reading, or holy tablets that they were reading, to then they had to commit to memory Old Testament scriptures which caused them to be firmly rooted in the promises of God in the priesthood. It reminds me of 2020 when the pandemic came into the world and really caught the world by storm. And I don't know about how many of you all thought like I did that that flu that came was only going to last about two weeks. And then when they extended the, uh, the, the, the pause for another additional two weeks, I said, well, we all can stay in place for at least a month, right? But we came back to a world that was completely different. And those who are still moving forward in this world didn't just allow circumstances to dictate how they moved. They went into a season of innovation where for years there was a call from various leaders saying there's a trend, you need to embrace online ministry, you need to shift the model of church from telling people to show up into one physical location, you need to embrace technology and sending the word to people wherever they are and however they are. The church at large said, no, 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 we need to tell people, join us on Sunday or whatever day at this particular time. This is where the glory is. This is where God shows up. And when COVID happened, we quickly realized that way is not going to work. So there became innovation within the church at large. More churches embraced online ministry. More churches embraced hybrid ministry. More churches had to evaluate the way that we have been doing church. Is this the way that God wants us to do it? And at the end of it all, for those who are still moving forward, we realized we went back to the very command the Lord gave us in Matthew chapter 28 to go ye into all the world rather than being lazy and inviting the church to come ye into our own establishment. And so I use that parallel to show you what happened to the temple prior to the silent years. There was mandated innovation in order to continue the promise and to continue the faith. During that time where the original temple was destroyed, this gave rise to the first Orthodox Jewish theologians, people who would be able to uh, commit scriptures to mem memory in order to create what later became the Greek Septuagint, which was Greek writing of the Old Testament. But during the reign of Darius, God raised up pro the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to bring conviction, even in the midst of innovation, to the Jewish people who had gotten a little bit lazy. 
who had began to rest in flux. So it's one thing to be in transition, but sometimes even in transitions, we can get locked into complacent patterns. And so God will ever so often in the midst of transition spur you to say, even in the middle, you can't stop now. There's still more to do. And I thank God in our lives, we are not where we used to be. But I don't believe any of us have arrived yet at where we need to be. And so God continues, even the midst of transition, to spur the moment because you could get complacent in the middle of what you're called to do. You could set up a permanent shop in a temporary season. You could begin to make permanent decisions not yet being where you need to be. And one thing I'm learning about God is that before you ever act, you always need to begin with first the end in mind. Where are you ultimately going? The question now is, how are you aligning your life to your ultimate goal? Every decision that you make right now, how is that aligning to the version of yourself that God is calling you to be? Or are you making decisions based on the version of yourself or where you are right now? And we can get, and I, I, I heard this in my spirit just, just getting ready this morning. God has called us as the body of Christ to be a body that moves. We are called to be a movement. But if we rest on our laurels and we only get excited about talking about what used to be, we'll end up being a museum rather than a movement. And many people talk about, I remember when God did this for me back in 2013. I remember when God did this for me back in 1999. But what did God do for you yesterday? <laughs> We've got to fight that temptation. And so Zechariah and Haggai from the Old Testament prophets, not the Zechariah that's the uh, father of John the Baptist, they were sent by God to wake up the body, to repent from the sin of procrastination. Oh, I said a cuss word. All y'all looked up at one time like, what? That's a sin? I thought that was, I was supposed to take my time. No. Procrastination, meaning God had called the Jewish people, once their temple was destroyed, to rebuild their temple. But because of life, because of change, they began to be complacent in the middle of what he asked them to do. And that is sin. And so prophets were raised up. And everybody don't like, you know, these, 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 now these 21st century prophets, they're different prophets. The 21st century prophets, the one that you pay for on social media, they give you the words you want to hear. But the prophets in the real Bible told you what you need to hear. And often, you don't like hearing or seeing a prophet coming, especially when they saw a prophet coming in the Old Testament. That was not something that they looked for. They knew that God sent to them a word. And when someone really operates in a prophetic grace, you don't like them. Because they're telling you stuff that's to happen before you see it. And often, we don't want to move till we see. But faith moves before it sees so it can have. 
So these prophets were nudging them back to what God had called them to do because they had uh, gotten into procrastination and putting off the task of whatever God told them. So I'm going to make this real personal. And I want us to just be honest because I'm going I'm to uh, be a part of this as well. But how many of us, for over a year, there is something that the Lord's been asking you to do and you've just been dragging your feet with it? My hands lifted. My, my, my feet would be lifted if I wouldn't fall down. <laughs> and how many of us, when we think about what he asked us, we accept that that's a reality but then there's something that causes us to have a level of paralysis from actually making it a reality. And hence, we're stuck. But here's the truth. Did God ask us to do it? Did we not do it? Whenever God asks you to do something and you don't do it, that's called sin. The things that I'm thinking about that the Lord asked me to do that I haven't done yet, though that is active sin in my life. Oh, my God, that hurt to say. Don't look at me. Y'all got sin, too. We want to think about sin as like the big stuff. No, 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 no. It's the little disobedience. And so there has to be a, a nudging that Closing out this year, going into next year, we're not going to have the same story. We're not going to have the same excuses. I know I've shared this at, at some time I've been preaching, but did you all know science has confirmed that just talking about something positive releases just enough dopamine to feel accomplished? For instance, after service today, I feel like running three miles. And I, I, I want you all to join me. So I want you all to say this with me. So, so repeat after me. Say, after service today, I'm going to run three miles. Now, even though you might be like, <laughs> can you admit you felt a little bit better by saying that? That's why people... <laughs> That's why when all you do is talk and no action, you feel like you've accomplished something and you've gone nowhere. So when God gets silent, that means he's working. But when God asks you to get silent, that means it's time for you to get to work. It's kind of like posting your workouts. If you are, people are going to know. If you're not, people won't see it. So when God asks us to do something, and this is a lesson I had to learn fast in leadership. Don't talk. Do. And when you do what he said, your fruit will speak for you rather than any word, email, text message, phone call, or meeting can ever do. Fruit. And so he sent those two prophets to encourage them to rebuild the temple. 
And so by the end of the recorded history of the Old Testament, and you'll be able to read all this in Nehemiah, the Jews were back in their land with a rebuilt temple and reconstructed walls without Jerusalem, around Jerusalem. And so at the end of Old Testament history, we mark the, the end of the prophetic era that, era that began with Moses. And during the 400 silent years, there was no divinely authenticated prophet proclaiming new authoritative truth. And that's why we call them the 400 silent years. But how many know, even though there wasn't new authoritative scripture being written, history, however, still continued. Most people want a new word without doing the last word the Lord told them to do. I want something fresh. I want something new. It's going to be the same exact thing he told you to do until you do what he says. God, let me tell you something about God. He doesn't change his mind regardless of the circumstance. <laughs> if the word really came from the Lord, it doesn't matter what else happened. His word is wisdom to navigate whatever circumstance you find yourself in. But if you find yourself adjusting what God said to meet your circumstance, I submit to you that you didn't hear that from Jehovah God. You heard that from lowercase g, you being God. And often people put God's voice on their own bad plans. And have to understand that if God says something, majority of the time you're not going to like what he says. Because what he says calls you higher then you naturally are willing to commit to. This is the reality of walking with the Lord. Is that he calls us to be comfortable with being uncomfortable in life. If you're not doing anything new, you're not growing. If you're not growing, you're stagnating. And, and I submit to you that if you stagnate it, you're declining. But God goes from glory to glory to glory to glory, and he's calling each of us to that same level. Amen. Amen. And so I am intentionally going to be lighting a nice holy fire, first under myself, and my household. But you better believe that if I'm lighting that holy fire at my house, this holy fire coming to your house. It's coming to your church. Because I don't believe that God has left us on this earth to be mediocre. I don't believe that God has left us on this earth to do and see the same things we've always seen before. I believe that God has placed us on this earth so we could go from faith to faith and from glory to glory and see things and experience things that we've never seen or done before. But he first has to have us prepare our hearts. The temple that was rebuilt at the end of the recorded history of the Old Testament was later enlarged and renovated 
by Herod the Great, who we read in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. So all of that was from Luke chapter 1 <laughs> and verse 5. This temple that was enlarged and renovated by Herod the Great stood for the next five centuries. And so what was originally destroyed, what God sent prophets to get them to be energized, to do what he said again, was something that was to be built and utilized by the advancement of the New Testament church. I submit to you that every day of disobedience is delaying the legacy God has called you to leave in this earth that should outlive you. And I just want to stand before God at the end of my time here on this earth to say, Lord, I did what you said. And let God be God. In the words of Dr. Charles Stanley, obey God and leave the consequences to him. Let's continue in verse 6. I want to, to end with this one point here today. Someone say and type in, silence the unbelief. So let's talk about silence here just for a moment. In verse 6 of Luke chapter 1, Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they both were very old. Drop down to verse 11. While Zechariah was in the sanctuary and the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar, Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. <laughs> oh, man, when I looked at the Greek for that word, overwhelmed with fear, that phrase, he was in a complete and utter panic. Let's put ourselves in Zechariah's shoes just for a brief moment. According to the Old Testament, the Talmud, when you went into the temple as the priest, it was supposed to be a quick exchange. The only time it wasn't quick is when you had sin in your life. And when you had sin in your life, you were a goner. So Zechariah, minding his own business, all of a sudden there's an angel that shows up. He thinks, oh, Lord, that's it. And he was overwhelmed with fear. And so in verse 13, the angel said, don't be afraid, Zacharias. God has heard your prayer. Note that. God has heard your prayer. Your wife Elizabeth will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. I want to pause right here. This is actually a prayer that Ashley and I prayed over Asher while he was still in her womb, that Asher would be filled with the Holy Spirit. You, it, you, you need to be mindful for those who are expecting of who you're around and what they're listening to and what they're saying. The same way that you can, you can preach and, and share the Word of God, you need to also be mindful of the words that others, that you're listening to around them, because those are going into the womb to form them. And so, you know, that was something that we prayed over Asher Worked out outside of when he likes to do what he, he does as a toddler. Anyway, so, and he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. 
He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. He will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Zechariah, verse 13, who had prayed, said to the angel, How can I be sure this will happen? How can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years. Two realities are present in what we've just read. In verse 13, the reality that he had the faith enough to pray a daunting prayer. But verse 18 shows the real reality about this walk with God, is that even though we pray prayers of faith, that doesn't mean that deep down in our hearts there's still not some doubt. You can pray great prayers and yet deep down still wonder, God, are you able to bring your word? To pass. Verse 19, the angel said, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he, God, who sent me to bring you this good news. Verse 20, but now since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. Someone highlight, notate, box around that last word right there. The word that God has spoken to you and over your life will be fulfilled, not when you think it should be fulfilled, but it should be fulfilled at the proper time. Sometimes when we pray, we think that what God is going to do is immediately drop off what we prayed for. But as we've said, there is a preparation that has to take place from the time that you pray to the time that you actually receive the promise. But what the angel who stands by God said, and I believe that not only did he say it to Zechariah, but he's saying it to you and I, the words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. But I'm an inquisitive individual. I asked, why in the world then would you silence Zechariah? Anybody just want to know, like, why did you silence? My man just wanted to know in verse 18, like, how can I be sure? Then we see you taking away his ability to speak. Well, my initial answer, just reading the text, I was saying, well, he wanted to silence his unbelief. And although that's not incorrect, it is incomplete as to why Zechariah was silenced. You see, we have to understand that Zechariah here, similar to Abraham, similar to Gideon, and others in the Old Testament, simply asked the Lord for a sign. How can I know this is your word concerning my life? Many people asked in the face of, uh, in the face of astounding promises, God, I need proof. I need to know how. What is the proof that what you said to me will come to pass? So as I sat with this, I had to realize something. That silence is not punishment. And Zechariah asked for a sign, yet God gave him silence. The greater the revelation, the more silent we become. Because when you're silent, you're not speaking, you're acting. Intentional silence is not punishment. 
Science later confirmed that intentional silence promotes self-awareness. It stimulates brain cells. It relieves stress. It helps with information processing. It boosts creativity. It aids with concentration. So the only thing the Lord did was he led Zechariah to something that was going to help him further facilitate the magnitude of his miracle. In verse 21, it said, Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah to come out of the sanctuary, wondering why he was taking so long. And when he finally did come out, he could not speak to them. Then they realized from his gestures and his silence that he must have seen a vision in the sanctuary. When you shift from just talking about it to being about it, others will know you have heard something from the Lord. Intentional silence becomes proof of divine activity. Less talking, more doing. I'm finna, we finna, we, no, do. Do. I want to close with this. from my devotional I read with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said, we are silent in the early hours of each day because God is supposed to have the first word. We are silent before we're going to sleep because to God also belongs the last word. The silence of the Christian is a listening silence, a humble silence, that leads to the right hearing and thus also to the right speaking of the Word of God at the right time. He closed by saying this, a lot that is unnecessary needs to remain unsaid. When God gives you a promise and you're really praying for something big and then Oh, negative Nancy shows up. Negative Nancy is non-binary. It can be both male and female. <laughs> he says, this is what I want you to, and then you're like, well, I don't know how this is going to, all of that is unnecessary. God gives you a word. You've got faith, and then you spend your waking hours thinking of ways to tear down what God told you to believe for. Unnecessary. My mama and grandmama almost said, if you ain't got nothing good to say, then don't say nothing at all. Keep your mouth shut. Silence. Let God work in your life. Let him put things together. Let him rearrange things in your life that you had been praying for without your negative words tearing down your personal progress. God will have you to hush, silence. Stop all that talking. 
Do you realize that the trip out of captivity into the promised land would have been a whole lot faster if they did what? Stop complaining and murmuring. If all they did was just trust that the one who brought them out had enough power to bring them to, they would have got there quicker and a whole generation would have experienced the promised land. I want to admonish you all as I close today. Don't let your mouth disqualify you from what God wants to do in your life. Listen, I'm all for journaling. Sometimes you need to get the real, honest thoughts out on paper. I'm all for journaling. I am. Please stand. Stand with me. I'm all for journaling. Be honest. Don't, don't lie. I'm not telling you to lie. I'm telling you to be honest. You get one time to get it all out. Journal, vent, do whatever you have to do. But once it's out, it is now your turn to allow God to speak to you on how to do it. Psalm 62, 5 through 8. David says, Let all that I am wait quietly before God, for my hope is in him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress where I will not be shaken. My victory and honor come from God alone. He is my refuge, a rock where no enemy can reach me. O oh, my people, trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart to him, for it's God who is our refuge. I want you all to put uh, the, the diagram up on the screen. So in 2024, I believe there's something huge that God wants to do in this assembly of believers. Mind-boggling. In fact, I'm encouraged. But in my own strength, it's overwhelming. But if we all can band together in prayer at the top of the year, I believe 2024 will be a year that none of us will ever forget. As I've gotten silent, God has become clear about the direction of this church. He has called us to empower leaders, equip families, and transform communities. Because I believe that every person in here should be healthy and thrive in your faith, in your family, in your friendships, in your fitness and also in your finances. That's why we exist. But it's going to require all of us to band together to make this a reality in all of our lives. So at the top of January, we're going to emphasize prayer, weekly gatherings, the cuss word in church, fasting, 
But the goal is to set you on a course to have better habits. Typically in church, people use fasting as a weight loss plan to get rid of all this excess holiday weight. And so it becomes legalistic. But I want to use fasting strategically to invite God's supernatural onto what we're naturally doing. I don't know if you all realize this, but Satan doesn't want to see this church healthy. I don't, I don't, I don't think you all realize the level of spiritual attack that comes against my wife and I on a weekly basis. And we're not ignorant to it. We know why. Satan knows if you knew how powerful you really were, he could never stop you. And we're committed to giving our lives to make sure that every person knows in every area of their life that God has given them dominion to reign as kings and queens in this life. But every success first starts with prayer. So go ahead right now. Mark our weekly gatherings in your calendar. You can do it. Oh, you can do it. Oh, you can do it. Even if you're out of town and traveling, it's online. You can do it. I want you all to commit to prayer 31 straight days. You can do it. As a church, we're going to fast for seven. Seven days. One week. Because at the end of this, you're going to have better habits. And the habits are the preparation to bring God's promise into your life. Whole goal, life change. That's the purpose. That's the goal. Amen.